Dr. Justine Dees. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. I'm really excited about this. I'm super stoked about this because I, for one, absolutely love your blog. I love your Twitter account. I love the way <laughs> that you talk about microbes. So Aww. I'm super, super excited that you said yes to the invitation to come on the show. Thank um, you. That means a lot. Well, before we get really started, uh, I want to tell people who you are because not everybody's on Twitter. And so uh, I know that you are a scientist who became a science communicator, more or less. So why don't you give people a little bit brief aperçu of your background? Well, um, I am now a science writer and also a science communicator doing um, communication on my blog, Joyful Microbe, and I'm starting a podcast, so it's a new avenue for communication for me, but I started out in science. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in biology, and then I got a PhD in microbiology, and um, I studied bacteria, the scary ones that cause infections, and um, and really enjoyed it and kind of found my love for microbiology when I was doing my bachelor's degree. Um, and then after I graduated with my PhD, I did a postdoc. And during that time, I kind of figured out that I really loved communicating about microbiology. And, um, and I also kind of figured out what I wanted to do for work after my postdoc because um, I wasn't sure if I would continue in research or just do something else. But um, on a personal note, I kind of found that being um, kind of tied to being in a research lab was going to be really difficult for me personally because um, my husband's job tends to move him around and also take us to remote places and kind of more rural. So. Um, <clears throat> that makes it more difficult to find jobs in science. And so we kind of talked about it and we're just like, what can I do with my degree that would allow me to, you know, enjoy using my degree, but then also, um, you know, have a job that would allow me to have the flexibility to move around and everything. And, um, and I kind of stumbled upon medical writing that way. And I didn't end up becoming a medical writer, but um, I'm a science writer. But it just kind of started with finding medical writing, which is where you write for pharmaceutical companies and, um, and you kind of write about the products that they sell and stuff. And, um, and then also write educational materials for doctors and things like that. And I thought, oh, I can do that. <laughs> I can learn how to do, you know, whatever I need to learn how to do to do that because I can understand the science behind it. And um, But then I realized um, after doing some more research, I discovered that there are people that have to actually share the information behind all science products and not just pharmaceutical things. And um, so like I worked in a lab for years and there are things that we used that were sold to the lab. And it's like, well, somebody wrote about that. Somebody provided information about it. And, um, and that's kind of how I came upon science writing and science content marketing. Um, and so I 
really liked the idea with content marketing, it's educational information that teaches people about kind of the different um, concepts that are behind the products. And so not necessarily the marketing actually of like um, trying to sell the products, but more just building trust and relationships with the customer. And so um, providing really, really good information. And to me, that sounded fun because I thought, well, I love writing about science and um, it would be fun to work with the companies that I, (laughs) you know, actually like bought products from as a scientist. And I was like, I know those products well because I used them. And um, so I just, that was kind of how I got into that. And I thought those are the clients that I want to have, you know, Um, I want to work with the companies that I once used to use their products as a scientist. So um, that's kind of how I got into what I do with that. But then kind of going back to when I was doing my postdoc um, and figuring out that I wanted to get into that type of writing, I realized that I needed to build up a portfolio of writing. And um, so that was kind of my initial motivation to start my blog, Joyful Microbe. And um, as I worked on it, though, and enjoyed it so much, I realized, you know, like, I have this portfolio, and it's awesome, but at the same time, like, <laughs> I love doing this so much. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> like, it's so cool to learn more and more about microbiology. Um, you know, when you do a PhD, you narrow in very specifically on a topic. And um, with the blog, I was able to kind of, like, branch out from all of that and learn about all different areas of microbiology and um, with my connections with people in microbiology through Twitter, but then also through um, just being, you know, in microbiology in the field, I was able to talk to people and interview them for the blog and learn about all different sorts of areas. I One of the first projects I started was talking to people that were experts in um, fermented foods because I was like, man, I worked on pathogens, you know, like the bacteria that make us sick. And so, but I want to learn about the beneficial microbes. And it really grew from there because I was like, this stuff is so amazing and more people need to know about it. And yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's, um, and what's interesting about what you do is I feel like you're almost in two different worlds, but they're related. So you have like, like you said, writing for the companies in, in life sciences, um, and then you have the other side, which is a blog that is also public facing, meaning I consume the articles on your blog. I'm not a scientist, you know, so you're writing for the public as much as you're writing, you know, maybe for contracts. Like, do you get contracts for life sciences companies? Yes. Okay. So you have contracts that are like more commercial or, or educational, let's say. Uh, but very, very targeted audience, right? I mean, life sciences companies, are, mm-hmm. those, that content is still going to science-oriented people. Um, yeah, exactly. Whereas your blog could come up in a hit with a, an 11-year-old child who's looking for microbe information. Oh, yeah. And it absolutely, right? there are people that read my blog that are kind of from all different areas um, with the, all different like sorts of backgrounds. Um People usually, I mean, they're science enthusiasts, but it's like it can be somebody who's not a scientist at all, somebody who's an engineer, you know. Um, 
I've had, yeah, all sorts of different people with different backgrounds um, reading my blog, which is really cool. I mean, I love it. it. It's like totally. <laughs> totally. And so what are the differences? I'm really curious from you know, somebody, like you said, you came from a science background, you were working in a lab. Now you're writing pretty much full time. Um, How did you get the knowledge required to a write, you know, properly? Because it's it's one thing to write a lab report, but also to to really (laughs) write properly, right? I mean, to write uh, clearly to to explain things that perhaps are advanced in terms of knowledge, but to make it simpler for the general public. Um, how did you acquire that knowledge? And within that knowledge, do you find there's a huge difference between when you're writing and the way that you're writing for your life sciences companies versus the public? I think that's such a good question. And I think a lot of people get into science writing and it's, it's they don't talk about that part as much. Um, they talk about science communication itself, but not about the the craft of writing. Um, but it was a huge part of me getting into this because I, I wasn't super confident about my writing skills. Um, as a scientist, you're not really trained in those types of things. You're trained in how to write a grant, how to write, um, papers and things like that. And, but at the same time, you're not really, (laughs) It's not suggested ever to like go back and learn, you know, how to write well. And so I realized that's going to be an important thing for me to do. And so I read a bunch of books about how to write, you know, Um, and that, I mean, it made a huge difference for me of just feeling confident about my writing and also just writing clearly and, um, so I have like a whole list of books that I went through, but um, they were, I mean, each one had good information in it. And it's just that repetition of, because some of the concepts are the same, you know, and others were kind of new in each book, but it was remembering all those different things that they talked about. And then the ones that were kind of um, similar amongst all those books is like they really stuck with me um but I will say also I I read about copywriting and um so that's writing words that will sell and um reading about how to be a good copywriter actually helps you learn how to just be a better writer because copywriting is it's meant to be very simple easy to understand by anyone And so I loved that because I was like, well, that's really what we're, we need to do as scientists, um, that are writing because what I always think about is there's jargon in science. Okay. But the words in between the jargon don't have to be fancy or complicated in my opinion. You know, I think that you can write all of that other stuff really simply and then if you have to use jargon, use jargon because, you know, in science papers, you're going to use jargon. But I wish I had realized that when I was um, doing my PhD and stuff that it just wasn't, you don't have to worry about being fancy about it, but um, that it's important just to keep the rest of it simple because there's already those complicated words in there. There's no reason to make it more complicated. And so I right. do that same thing when I work with my clients too. Um, I keep 
because there is jargon that I use um, in there. I try to keep it really simple in the in-between parts. <laughs> and then for my articles on the blog, of course, I I try to simplify it as much as possible. And if there is jargon, then it's um, then I define it. But but yeah, I mean, going back to your question, I just I, I did a lot of research and writing or, or learning about writing. Um, and then there was a course that I took on Coursera, which is um, there's free courses available on Coursera, and um, it was called Writing in the Sciences, and that was excellent. Um, really, really helpful for learning more about how to be a good writer, and then also applying that to science writing. Makes a lot of sense. Your blog is also, interestingly enough, very much anchored in solid marketing principles. Uh, it, it's definitely, you know, very clear headlines. It's got proper formatting. Uh, you know, you've got the pop-up where you're, you're giving away free articles for email sign up. I mean, I know all this stuff cause I do marketing as well, but, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's all very, uh, um, how can I put it? Like I said, anchored in marketing principles, which is something that even the good science writers sometimes don't do, right? Mm-hmm. They have great mm-hmm. writing on their blog, but nobody's seeing it. It's not yeah. going out there. So where did you learn your marketing stuff? <laughs> so the, <laughs> a bunch of books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did so much reading to learn about this stuff, I, but I loved it. Um, I found books about content marketing. So when I was reading about um, freelance medical writing, I read a book by Emma um, Hit Nichols, I think is her name. And she had a book called the uh, freelance medical writing I think is the name of it and um, there was a section in the book that recommended other books and there was a book called the well-fed writer that she recommended and that was all about um, how to become a freelance writer in marketing and so that's kind of how I like discovered that there are all these niches that you know are in marketing and I was like well I can do science. And I thought that's going to be really fun, you know? And then that's kind of how I found out about content marketing. So it's like, it just kind of, each time I discovered something new, then I would read another book on that. And I read a book about content marketing um, and read several books on content marketing and then started following people that are really good at marketing, um, podcasts and things like that, learning from them. And, um, and that's what's kind of fun about my blog too. It's like, I, it's like, I love it so much and I love writing about what I write about, but I also love that I get to, um, actually like put the things into practice, practice that I learned (laughs) from those books and things. Um, so it's kind of like my training ground in a way. Yeah. I see this all the time in marketing forums or people are like, I want to get into marketing. You know, what degree should I take? And, and, and all this stuff. And most seasoned professionals will tell them just, Read stuff, put it into practice. Read again, put more into practice because mm-hmm. you learn a lot by doing. Yes. And the reason I wanted to bring this up with you is because you're kind of a model a model content writer in the sciences in the sense that like uh, science communication is a growing industry um, and that people need role models. And I think that your blog is a very good role model for other people who might want to write in their own niche, whether that's astronomy Mm. or whatever, right? I mean, I think um, it's good to openly speak about, oh, you know what, guys, you should read a marketing book, not just learn how to (laughs) communicate science, but 
pick up a marketing book. It's really worth it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've thought about this, too, because I want to teach people about it um, and maybe write a book about it or um, like make an online course or something. And that's something I would teach them is that if how important marketing is when it comes to sharing science um, and then learning a little bit about copywriting and putting that into practice because that's just it's, it's so effective for communicating. It doesn't mean you're being, you know, like bad in any way just because you're trying to sell what you want to educate people on, you know? So it's like, it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It's just, because I think it has like a bad connotation of marketing, you know? (laughs) Oh yeah. We talked about this um, with uh, Ailey Diner, who's somebody else that you know, who, uh, who's in science marketing. And, and I was Mm -hmm. like, so do you think that marketing has a, has a negative connotation? It was like, oh my God, you have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it is, uh, it is kind of, I see this a lot with artists too where they feel like a sellout if, if they learn anything about marketing because you're supposed to like remain pure in some way. But I think that also transfers to scientists. They, they believe that like science should just be discovered. It shouldn't be sold. Mm. Uh, so I see that a lot. And now I'm curious to know, though, like what do you think are the areas of improvement in science communication? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think, I th- man, I have to think about that. I mean, I think there are a lot of different things, but I think what can be improved is just the way that people talk about science. Um, and then the, so like being able to actually, you know, like talk about it and like realize, like step away from their science and, and look at it with the eyes of a person who has no idea what they're talking about. Um, and is so clueless about it that, you know, they just wouldn't even know any of the words that they're saying and then figure out, okay, from that point of view, how could I explain this? And so that's being a good science communicator, but I think also just being willing to try out some of these marketing principles and copywriting and things and, um, not feeling ashamed <laughs> about it, you know, and like they shouldn't be doing these things. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think that's something that I've been thinking about that it, it would be really good for more scientists to kind of understand how to market their stuff. And I guess for me, I'm going to have to figure out the best way to communicate that too. Um, because I think if you tell someone, oh, you learn how about Uh, learn about marketing, learn how to market your stuff. It just sounds kind of (laughs) lame, in my opinion, you know. So it's almost like figuring out how to communicate that in particular to people and say, like, if you can figure out how to, you know, get more people excited. And then it's like, well, the bridge to that is going to be learning how to copyright and (laughs) but teaching people those skills, I think. I think that would improve things a lot. Um, And then just making things really simple. And like you said, even just breaking things down into headings and bullet points really, really help that kind of stuff. Not having large blocks of text, um, you know, for written things. So, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, to me, it's interesting what I've observed because I've only been in like the science Twitter world for like, 
almost two years. And what I've observed is that a lot of the science communication is being done with other academics. Mm-hmm. So they'll be like science communicating with other academics, which is great, awesome. Now the academics understand each other, but there's not a whole lot of uh, focus on the general population side of science communication. At least that's my impression. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I think it's really, um, it's like easier to find those people and for them to find you because that's your network. So I can totally see how people get caught in the bubble, um, especially on Twitter. Um, and I mean, I know that even like my stuff, a lot of people that follow me are microbiologists. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like I really do want to break out of that. And so that's something that I kind of have to learn about as well um, is how can I keep reaching more people? And I'm really hoping, like I mentioned earlier when I'm starting a podcast, and I'm really hoping that that will allow me to reach more people too because I think with blogs, it's easy to get lost. There are so many blogs out there. So Yeah, it's interesting. The advice I always give scientists these days is because I'm, I'm kind of unique because I've been an artist longer than I've been in the science world. So all my circle of friends like are like filmmakers, musicians, etc., And what's interesting is that they're just as fascinated by all these little critters, like like all the tardigrades I find and all that stuff. And they have ended up, you know, following me on all the social networks. And now they're mixing with all the scientist friends that I'm making. So I always kind of tell scientists, you know what, why don't you um, collaborate with artists? You know, like really though, because artists can add pizzazz to your blog. You guys can find collaborations. I'm working, um, somebody just proposed a music video the other day, you know, like a a DJ who's like, hey, let's make a music video with tardigrades. I was like, that's awesome. That's a great way to connect with the general public. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about more about the content writing because I'm curious to know, What's the kind of content that you wish you could write about? Um, are you referring to the client work or? Yeah, um, the client work. Because your blog, you can do whatever you want. But like the client work, I'm really curious to know if there's like, I don't know, one client is, is you know, specifically that you want to write for or like a topic you want to write for for them. Um, I think <laughs> I always love writing about microbiology. Um, and the cool thing is, is that I've gotten to work with companies that have me write on those types of topics. And so I always enjoy that. I love getting to kind of take my knowledge and then um, expand on it and um, and then be able to keep like researching into new things that I didn't realize. And it's funny, one thing I will say kind of on content writing on these products or just anything related to them or educational wise is that there are things that I didn't think about as a scientist that we write about now. And so I'm like, this is really funny that I just never even thought about that. You know, you would even ask that question or want to know that information about that certain product. And so it's, can you give me an example? um, Well, um, let me think. So like media that we would grow bacteria on, there's a lot of information about the media that we use. And it's just kind of like in lab, you're told like use 
LB, you know, this um, media. And you don't really question necessarily, or I mean, I didn't really question like, okay, why did we choose this one instead of that one, you know? And um, you just kind of know like lots of bacteria grow on it and it's, um, and it works really well. But are are there better ones? And why this one? And what are the ingredients and all that kind of stuff? So it's kind of interesting to look more into those things. And um, so it's not to say that I wasn't curious, but it's like, when it came to that kind of stuff, it was just like, I just need to grow this bacteria. And then you're curious about the questions you're asking that are like your research questions, not necessarily about like, you know, why I'm using this particular media. So so in a way, you're kind of being paid right now to be curious. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool job, I got to admit. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's, your, uh, what's your podcast going to be about? So the Joyful Microbe podcast is going to be about microbes in our daily lives. And I'm interviewing lots of different people that have, that do work that's related to microbiology. So that was, of course, going to be like microbiology researchers, but then also artists that um, create things that are related to microbiology and um, maybe... um, <laughs> like a distiller or a brewer, um, like that different people that have those types of jobs that you may not really think of right away. Um, maybe someone who makes sourdough bread for a living. Um, so that kind of stuff. And just ask them questions about how their work relates to microbiology. But then also um, each guest, I'm asking that they kind of bring an activity idea so that people can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way. And so that's one thing that I have on the blog, the blog already are some different activities that people can do. And I want to expand that by having the guests kind of apply that to their research area or their, um, you know, expertise and, um, and kind of like get ideas for ways that people can have fun with microbes at home too. And not just, you know, as like, it's not as limited to scientists, it's anybody, you know? So it's 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 been really, really cool. Like I, the things that people, the ideas they've been bringing, I mean, it's so neat. I'm so excited. It's like, I could never think of these things on my own. So that's what's so fun about having these guests on the podcast that have these ideas. And um, so like one example is I interviewed a woman who's a, um, she researches extremophiles, which are microbes that live in extreme environments. And um, her activity is teaching everyone how to grow extremophiles that live in the Himalayan, the pink Himalayan salt. And so you can like do that at home. And I was like, what? Well, look forward to that. I can't believe that. That's like, <laughs> I never even thought about that, that that would be possible to do. And she kind of like figured that out. And so, and she's sharing that. So I just loved That's it. Really, what, uh, what creature, if I can ask? Um, oh, do you goodness. remember? I can't remember, but okay. I think it's bacteria of some kind or archaea, oh, okay. but I'm pretty sure it's bacteria. It's funny because when it comes to bacteria, so, you know, I, I, had a, a Twitch stream. I still have it. I'm on hiatus right now. But one of the things that people kept asking me when they would, you know, learn that it's not 
that expensive to have a microscope at home these days is that they would ask me if it's okay to grow bacteria at home. And I've been just kind of, because I'm not a scientist, <laughs> I've been telling them like, no, maybe don't do that. Um, is there a safe way to actually grow uh, bacteria at home? Okay, so it really depends. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's such a scientist thing to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's true. Um, so like with that activity that she shared, um, that was Dr. Adrienne Kish, by the way. Um, so she said that the stuff that you're going to grow is completely harmless. And it's like no big deal. You don't have to worry about it at all. So I, I guess it, it's more knowing what you're growing. And that's where if you're growing random stuff, it can get kind of iffy. Um, like you don't necessarily want to leave chicken out and then grow a bunch of <laughs> stuff on that. <laughs> like I think the problem is with like meat especially, that is a really good way to cultivate pathogens. So I don't really recommend growing – stuff on like leaving meat out <laughs> and growing well, then things on. That Plus leads me stink. to that leads me to an interesting question then because one of the things I do have been known to do is to put pond samples in little bottles and then just let them, you know, stay in there for like months and months until they get oh, yeah. just disgusting. And I've seen like weird growths like in the shape of balls and stuff in there. And it's just <laughs> and there's like this this like juicy kind of guck on the side of the glass and I'm mm -hmm. like is that could that potentially be dangerous to me I think I'm, I mean obviously I'm not drinking it <laughs> yeah yeah well okay so if you're like allergic to mold and stuff um if you take the lid off of it and then you let that get out into the air that would be something you know I'd be careful about but I mean not just if you're Keeping the it closed and you're just looking at it, that's not a big deal. <laughs> you okay. know. I had to ask a microbiologist because <laughs> at the end of the day, I know nothing and I always advise people that I know nothing. Um, yeah, I, so. I mean you have to think about like your refrigerator. If you ever leave food to spoil, like you know, yeah. like it's that happens all the time. That's like a completely normal thing. And I think other things obviously spoil too. So <laughs> you leave things for too long, something weird is going to grow. And those, <laughs> those little balls that you mentioned, that's like one of those kind of fun things that will appear in um, like contaminated lab meat, growth media. Um, and so, like, every once in a while, if something is contaminated, you'll see those little kind of, like, puffy, they look like um, cotton balls or something floating yeah. around. And, I mean, it's never fun to get contamination in something that you really care about. But when it's like, oh, that was really old anyways, it's, like, kind of fun. <laughs> is there a part of you that misses the hands-on work? Okay. So, it, I did, but I've found I've found like multiple ways to kind of you know meet that need for myself. Um, and that's probably I mean that's a huge reason why there are activities on my blog because I started with the fermented foods first. And um, I was like, okay, you know, I'm really excited about this. I can learn about this. I can talk to experts and then figure out how to do this at home. And once I started doing that, I think kombucha was my first one. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what I did was really super weird is that 
um, I didn't just buy a SCOBY like you're supposed to, um, which SCOBY is the, um, the symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast. And, um, and it's kind of like this gross looking, like rubbery looking thing that floats on top of the kombucha, which you don't see if you buy like a bottle of kombucha at the store, but it came from that. Um, so you can actually buy a bottle of kombucha at the store and then you can dump that into a a jar or something and then make some sweet tea at home (laughs) and then you can grow scoby from that. It takes a long time, but I just was like, I'm just going to see if I can do it, you know, because I read on some people's blogs and stuff online that you could grow your own scoby from that. It's not the best way to do it. And it turns out real weird. And especially if you like buy kombucha that had fruit flavorings and stuff, like if it was like strawberry kombucha or something, you know, then it gets really weird. So, um, and it was not good, but it did, it made a scoby. And so it was kind of like, just doing that was so exciting and seeing it start to form. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm growing a scoby at home. And um, so, so kombucha was my first one. And then I started making sauerkraut. And that is, it's just so cool that you can just chop up cabbage, salt it, and squish it a bunch, and then leave it to sit and make sure it's all the cabbage is under the liquid. And then you, after a while, you know, like a week or two or three, you um, end up with sauerkraut and it tastes good. And I don't know. I mean, some people don't love the smell, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's it's just so amazing that you can do that at home. And so let's see, I did sauerkraut and I bought kefir. Um, uh, You can buy um, the grains online and uh, all that is is just the kefir grains and you put that in milk and then they make kefir for you. And it's like a daily process, unfortunately. So if you want something low maintenance, I wouldn't do that. But you can refrigerate it and kind of let it sit for a while. Um, and yeah, getting into that. And then I made my own sourdough starter and then I bought a microscope. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and, Which one did um, you get? So I have, um, I think it was an AM scope, wasn't it? Or an OMAX? Why am I blanking on this? Hold on. Yep. (laughs) So Justine is just getting up here to to go check out. (laughs) I know. I'm like, it's right in here. Um, It's a Swift. (laughs) It's a Swift. Yeah. So that's the third brand I usually recommend for people because it's it's not um, super expensive. It's not like a big brand name, like a a Nikon or Olympus. It's it's, uh, budget friendly put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, I know. Yeah. And that's what's so cool to me about it is that you can get a microscope that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. I think when I was doing research in the lab and working also in a lab because I, I, um, I worked in microbiology labs before going back to grad school. So we used microscopes and I never really thought about that as something that you could have at home and that I would be able to afford to have at home. And, um, and actually like have a quality image. So 
But anyways, yeah, I got that microscope and I wish that I was using it more often. I like lately, I just haven't had the time, but we, we moved recently. So that, <laughs> that just doesn't give you as much time, but I did find a tardigrade recently again, because we had, um, some moss in our front yard where we moved from that I had found tardigrades in before. And I thought, before we left, I was like, I'm just going to grab some more. <laughs> I'm going to take it with me. And then whenever we get to, you know, where we're moving, I'm going to look at this and um, rehydrate the moss. So anyways, that the, those are the things that have helped me not feel like I'm missing out on being in the lab. Um, and then also, so like doing those hands-on things is really satisfying, but also being connected to microbiologists on Twitter and seeing the things that they post and learning about it, but then just seeing their pictures and stuff. It's, it's fun to, to see what people are up to and what they're growing and all that. Yeah. I always tell people, especially, you know, the artists who follow me on Facebook and they have all sorts of questions that I can't answer because I'm not a scientist. Um, and a lot of them have purchased their own microscopes exactly because, mm -hmm. like you said, they're budget friendly now. Um, I always tell them to go on Twitter because the community there is super friendly. It's where all the scientists are. They're not really on Facebook. They're on Twitter. Um, so yeah, you're part of that community, which is really cool. But don't you find like the the people on Twitter are super generous with their with their feedback on stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. People are always willing to if you ask a question, somebody will respond. And if you're wondering, what is this that I found, whether <laughs> yes. it's microscopic or it's like a fungus that you found or a mushroom hiking, you know, or slime mold, because um I love finding those things whenever I'm out hiking. I just always take pictures and then I'll post them. And and if I don't know what it is, someone's usually willing to chime in with, you know, an idea. Yeah, they're really cool. Um, I want to pivot a bit to your blog because you wrote, there's something that you really focus on that I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce properly. Is it Winogradsky? Oh, is it, yeah, Winogradsky. Yeah. Can you explain to people what that is, the Winogradsky column, I think it's called? Yeah. So um, a Winogradsky column is a way to grow microbes. And um, you can kind of select for certain types of microbes based on the what you supply in the um, environment. And so you grow them in a glass container so you can actually see what's going on. And you, um, and it's so simple because it's just mud, water, and paper, and an egg yolk. And the egg yolks provide sulfur, and the paper provides a carbon source. And um, so then you're kind of selecting for the microbes that can grow on those things, and then they produce colors. And they show up in layers of different colors. And then you can kind of tell what's growing based on the color pattern or the colors themselves. And um, what I love about it is just because it's like it's pretty. And it's um, – and of course, they're not all pretty. But <laughs> some of them take a lot longer to grow and some of them are faster. Um, but I, I think it's just amazing that you can actually see the – microbes growing. And so the blog post is um, a window into the microbial world because to me it is, it's like looking into this world that you normally can't see. 
you look at mud and it's it's like brown usually you know there you just don't see very many colors and you don't realize that all of those microbes are in there and they can produce those colors but they just haven't been given this you know very specific environment in which to do that and so that's what the Winogradsky column does and it's usually kind of tall. And so then at the top, you have more oxygen. At the bottom, you have less oxygen. So then you're selecting for microbes based on if they can grow with or without oxygen. And um, so I just think it's really fun to get to see this visual aspect of microbiology that's usually not there because microbes are, most of them are invisible. I think this is something I want to try to do this summer because it seems really cool. I mean, it, it's okay for a non-scientist to do that, obviously, right? Oh, absolutely. For sure. I, I hope that lots of non-scientists do it. Um, and I love hearing about any, like whenever people tell me that they've tried it for, for the first time or, you know, um, some people, some scientists will say that they shared it with their family and <laughs> I just think that's so neat. But yeah, it's totally safe. Yep. And could you, like, could you, like, because you said the microbes, depending on the, the type of microbes, they, they create different colors. Is it like the type of mud that you should select for or like, what should you change up if you want to get different colors? Mm, okay, that's a good question. So you can actually, so I described the very basic Winogradsky column, and you can actually add in other ingredients that will, you know, enhance the growth of certain microbes. Um, and so that's one way to do it. And then the mud, yeah. And then also how much light they get. But the um, the mud is... I actually, I feel like I got really lucky with the Winogradsky column that I made because I went looking for some good mud and came across, <laughs> there was a pond that had, um, I saw a metallic sheen on the, the water. And I think a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't even know until like the past few years, that that metallic sheen is actually an indicator of bacteria that can um, oxidize the metals. And so they um, it tells you that certain types of microbes basically are growing in that environment, but then they, they actually, um, those metals kind of are the indicator that they're there. And I noticed that and I thought, I wonder if I put that in, that mud in the column, like, will I see some of those colors or will I see, you know, some of that stuff come out? And, um, I think that is why, like part of why my column kind of turned out the way that it did had like this really orange layer, which is iron oxidizing bacteria. And, um, that was really exciting. And it did kind of have like a metallic sheen that was like on the, um, on the jar itself as well. And, um, so yeah, you can kind of switch up where you get the mud. I've heard of people using ocean water and sand and stuff like that. And, um, there's just so many different variations of the Winogradsky column that then gives you different, you know, different microbes growing in different color patterns. And, and I think one of the biggest things that I want to emphasize though, is that it's just, it doesn't matter if your Winogradsky column looks like the pictures or the 
the color guides that you see out there where they kind of show you like the layers, they're really showing you more like the potential of the different types of layers you might see. It doesn't mean you're going to see all of them. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be arranged in that way perfectly. So it's um, it's just kind of like whatever you get is awesome, <laughs> you know. It's like it's exciting no matter what. Like, And it takes time too. That's another thing that can be kind of frustrating to people. They want to see it fast. And so um, – but giving them a little bit more light can help with that, I think. Why did you have them in, in the snow the other day? You posted a, a tweet or something and you were like, oh, my poor Winnebetsky <laughs> columns. And I was like, why does she have them in the snow? Can you explain It never that? snows here. And I, I just really didn't anticipate that happening. <laughs> oh, so you actually, you, you had left them outside. Well, they live outside. That's where I grew them. Um, oh. they, I, uh, I, I keep my Winogradsky outside and I just wanted it to have natural light. You can use any type of light source. You can use like a lamp or something if you want to have a more controlled environment. I was told that they can smell and that's true. Um, and so that was another thing where I was like, I'll just keep it outside. I don't have to worry about the smell. Um, and so, <laughs> but after moving here, it just, we had the, you know, the weather was crazy recently. It never snows here. And then it did. And I was like, here, oh, no. Whereabouts in are you? In Arkansas. Oh, you're in Arkansas. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why. That's right. You guys got that weird snow stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. And I probably, yeah. if I thought about it a little bit more, I probably wouldn't have. But I, I didn't know how much snow we were going to get. I just didn't really anticipate that. That was just kind of silly on my part. But then I was like, well, there's something kind of beautiful about this. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So. Um, some Another blog article that you wrote was uh, that was really, really interesting is travel destinations for microbe lovers. I love that article because I'm <laughs> like, you. oh, I never thought about going to these places. Um, are there any places in there that you've been to or are there any that are, are like in your top three list of places you want to go to? I have been to Yellowstone and saw the Grand Prismatic, and that was like one of the most wonderful things to experience, just getting to see that in person. Um, So the Grand Prismatic, for those who don't know what that is, um, it's one of the hot springs at Yellowstone, and it has different colors that are um, once again, going back to the color thing, there are different colors based on like what microbes can grow in that environment. And um, it's really hot in the middle and it gets less hot. I mean, it's kind of hot everywhere, but less hot toward the outside. So then you have different colors um, and it's blue in the middle and then orange around the edge. And um, so that was really incredible just to see that actually in person. Um But I think one of the places that I want to go the most that I have not been is a museum called Micropia, and it's in Amsterdam. And um, it's just, it's the microbiology museum. (laughs) Like, it's (laughs) the museum that I need to go to the most. (laughs) And um, so I, I just, that would be so cool to actually go there in person. Um, and see all those cool exhibits about microbes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really curious to know, uh, do you have fans sometimes that write to you? And, and if so, do they ask you weird questions? And if so, what's what are some of the questions that your fans <laughs> have asked you? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely have people that write to me. Um, I have a newsletter and I send it out weekly. And I really try to encourage people to respond because I, I like talking to people and finding out what they need and how I can help them. And also, it's just fun to kind of chit chat with the people that are reading the blog. Um, and yeah, they'll ask questions. Um, they'll ask microscopy questions, things about um, like what uh, sometimes like troubleshooting issues. Um, and I'm trying to think things about kombucha, um, ways that they can. People have asked me about like the health benefits and things like that. And I don't always know the answers to all the questions. Sometimes I'll research them. I and sometimes I'm, I know that it's way too like, a, you know, in depth for me to ever figure out. It would probably take like hours of research for some of them. So I really, I do the best that I can, but you know, I don't know everything about microbiology <laughs> and I'm learning. I'm like, and so that's what's so cool about the podcast is that I get to learn more, you know, from other um, people that have knowledge about microbiology. Uh, so, how many um, how many episodes are you planning? Um, how many episodes am I planning to like, like? Is it a series? Or are you like doing ongoing weekly? Oh, it'll shows? be ongoing. <laughs> All right. Cool. Oh yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And it'll be like an hour every week or two hours. I think it's going to be every other week to start. Um, okay. I, I didn't want to overwhelm myself <laughs> by doing it every <laughs> single week. Um, but it'll be, yeah, probably around an hour per episode. The interviews have kind of been around um, 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. Yeah, I started out this podcast uh, two hours a week. Like literally two days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays. And wow. it was like just unmanageable because by the time <laughs> you do all the marketing assets for each guest, by the time you do the show notes, by the time you get it out to the editors, um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a lot of work. I think a lot of people are starting podcasts these days and totally underestimating the amount of work if you want to do it right. So I yeah. think you're, you're absolutely doing the right thing by just doing it every other week because that'll yeah. be totally manageable. Well, and I also, I want to have blog posts to go with. And so yeah. it's like, I want that to be a good information for people to, if they just want to reference the blog posts and go and read that, um, you know, it'll have planning on having transcripts of the interviews, but then it's like, I want to have good, like key takeaways and things like that, that if someone just read the blog post, they'd still get something out of it. And I've had people like my readers say, like that they love the pictures and they're like, are you still going to have pictures? <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, don't worry. There will be pictures of the different things that people work on and stuff. So, um, but that's kind of a, a reason why I wanted to make sure I have enough time to be able to do that. And um, so I keep in touch with my people that subscribe to my newsletter every week, but um, you know, I'll be providing like new content on from the podcast every other week, but at least you know, I'll still be keeping in touch. <laughs> For sure. Uh, speaking of time, so we have a few minutes left, but I wanted to really get um, a bit of an overview of what a day in the life of a content writer is really like. Like, I mean, do you get to sleep in and you just kind of like plan your <laughs> schedule and do your thing? Or like, what, what's, it, what's it like to 
to to be a content writer? Oh, I think that's so different for different people. Um, well, for and you I bet specifically. Being- yeah, so I but I'm just saying like I could imagine that it would be this this answer would be so different for someone who does you know like that doesn't have a a blog that they're trying to do things with. <laughs> so yeah, of course I kind of um right now like split my time so that I can work on the blog and then also work on um the client work. And so I spend like basically the first half of my day thinking about the blog and working on those types of things. And, um, and then the second half of my day I spend on client work. And so I'll get up and, you know, kind of like prepare for the day and then get going on. I mean, lately it's been a lot more just because I'm trying to launch the podcast and stuff. So spending time on getting episodes ready. And, um, I'm also kind of trying to think about, different, um, new ways that I can provide resources for my readers. And, um, I'm working on a more in-depth guide of the Winogradsky column that will be, um, a digital product that I'll have available pretty soon. And, um, so I've been working on that as well and working with an artist. (laughs) I'm really excited about that. (laughs) Her name's Liza Vanderart. And, um, so, getting her to create something really amazing for that. And, um, and so I'll spend time on that stuff. And then the second half of my day, I just spend that on, um, focusing on client work and, um, but then it's like, you have to run a business too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, some of that time can, in the beginning of my day, I can, I spend time just kind of managing the business itself, um, as a, you know, having your own business means you are, you play all the roles of, you know, being the accountant and all that stuff. So (laughs) there's like that stuff too. (laughs) Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, uh, what do you do outside of, outside of all this stuff? Do you have any hobbies? Um, I love mountain biking. (laughs) So, um, yeah, my, my husband and I mountain bike together. He got me into it. I, I'm the biggest scaredy cat in the world. So <laughs> anyone who thinks they can't mountain bike, who just look at me and say, all right, if she can do it, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's super fun. Um, so we love mountain biking. And so there were trails. We were living in Hot Springs, Arkansas before. There were some really good trails there. And then we found some really awesome trails here where we are. We live in the Jonesboro, Arkansas area. So, but there is also, because there are mountain biking trails, there are also hiking trails. And I love hiking. I love um, just being outside and enjoying that. But as a microbiologist, I also really enjoy finding <laughs> all of those little creatures out there. <laughs> like, <laughs> um different types of fungi and slime molds and stuff. So that's always so much fun whenever I happen upon those things. Um, I think the thing that's so fun about having a blog, though, that I love the topic so much is that it's really easy for me to kind of like enjoy that throughout my day and kind of find ways that like even whenever I'm not working on the blog, I'm still kind of thinking about it in those, in that, like, um, within that context, you know, everything that I do and how does that apply (laughs) to, um, you know, that in my daily life, how does that apply to microbiology and the microbial world? So I think that's always kind of fun to think about, but yeah, 
Um, and I love coffee and tea. And so I always like to kind of find new loose leaf teas and explore that and um, make good coffee with an espresso maker and French mm. press. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, well, listen, uh, Dr. Justine Dees, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I mean, I've learned a lot uh, through your blog. So it, again, it's it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on and to be able to speak to you, as we would say, a vive voix in French. In other <laughs> words, uh, you know, I have to let my French Canadian come out sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's been fun. So if people want to learn more um, or to essentially just read your blog, they should go to joyfulmicrobe.com. And yep. your podcast is launching when? March 25th. March 25th. All right, guys. So uh, stay tuned for, uh, for Justine's podcast. And thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This really has been a pleasure. And um, yeah, if you come over to the blog and you read stuff, and if you um, want to, send me an email um, or subscribe and then reply to one of my emails. That'll make my day. <laughs> awesome. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Thank you.